Okay, Nahum chapter 1 tonight. I only have five sermons in Nahum, so we'll be through it quickly, and then we're going to move to Galatians. And uh, uh, we're going to do Galatians. Uh, there's After we finish the grief series, I think the next thing we're going to talk about um, uh, has to do with some things about Jesus, historical facts about Jesus, but just a lot of different thought, ways we're going to move in Scripture this year. Uh, but I think this is going to be really helpful for us. Uh, it's kind of a continuation of the series I did last year on Jonah, because Nahum is kind of the second half of the story of Nineveh. So I want to read the first eight verses, and then we'll look at this this evening. The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite, God is jealous. The Lord revenges. The Lord revenges and Baal is furious. And I added Baal there, but in Hebrew, that's where it goes. And I'll explain more about that in a moment. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers so that Bashan languishes, Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languishes. And the mountains quake at him. The hills melt. The earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all they that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. Do you remember growing up those standardized tests? It was the one with the little stop signs on the page. Uh, that's about all I remember of those, except the teacher was always a little over the top on not starting early and not going past where it said to stop. It was always kind of, I thought, a little overkill, but I guess there are students who would break those rules. But one thing I really do remember about those tests, besides the fact that we had them, is that some of the sections involved comparisons. And those were the sections that I felt like I did really well in because I think I have kind of a comparative mind. I, I tend to associate things together. You, you, you look at the problem and there's a little blue car and a green bus and a yellow bicycle and a red strawberry, right? And he says, which of these is not like the others? Uh, so it kind of became a song, in fact, I think. But, you know, I always felt sorry for the poor colorblind guy because uh, between the greens and the reds, he had uh, no real indication. But it was that strawberry for me that just gave it away. It's obviously not a vehicle of any kind, so it's got to be the strawberry. Of course, my friend Scott in grade school, he purposely got all the wrong answers uh, just to throw off the standardized test. And you know that's not right, but he did it anyway. But I want to do a little comparison right now. I think this will be good for us. It's a pretty easy one, but I think some people still have a little difficulty grasping the, this comparison. Shouldn't be hard for us. 
On the one side, let's put God. His nature. He's great. That is, he is powerful. He's majestic. He transcends time. He's the creator of all things material and immaterial. He is strong and and he is sovereign over the earth. He is also good. God is loving and merciful and gracious and kind. And this is the God that our Bible reveals him to be. On the other side is our country. Our country today is filled with people who do not know God. There are many who, after learning of him, don't want to know him any more or any further. I think it's kind of interesting that there are people who still believe that America is a Christian nation or that even was a Christian nation, that all we need are a few tweaks here or there and we'll be back to some romanticized version of our past. This past Monday, a leak to a Politico reporter by someone who works for the Supreme Court turned the publication of a draft document by Justice Samuel Alito that indicates that there may be the votes necessary to overturn Roe and Casey. Casey is kind of the, um, it was the decision that came after Roe that really did uh, codify and solidify Roe v. Wade in our, in our court system. But it seems like there are enough votes to overturn both of those decisions. And the two decisions, these two earlier decisions that discovered the right to abortion may actually be overturned. And this past week, and I think for a number of weeks going forward, even the news that came out today is that there are, is increasing pressure amounting against these justices to change their minds. And in fact, some are even calling, I read this afternoon, some calling for violence against the court. You might know the building is actually surrounded now by a fence. But this is not what it seems to be. Abortion is only a part of our national moral problem. Since the Scopes trial in 1925, that's almost 100 years ago, our nation has increasingly turned to the idea that there is no God. Darwinism, if you accept it as it stands, is the view of scholars, the majority of scholars today. And it refers to those, uh, and some now who believe this, refer to those who teach creationism as actually propagating child abuse. Our culture has a seeming hatred for the elderly. Many older people are dropped off in nursing homes and abandoned. Financial ethics, I'll just tell you, is completely gone, right? If people steal from one another, they vote themselves money they don't deserve, and corporations are no better, regularly cheating both their customers and their shareholders. Adultery is the norm of the land. A pastor I was talking to this week. This is a pastor from South Carolina. We were talking about a man that's in his church that he wanted me to talk to him about. So I didn't call him. He called me. He wanted me to talk about this man. And he kept saying, this man is a good man. He's a trustworthy man. And you, you can listen to what he says. And I said to him, 
wait a minute, didn't this man just in the last 15 years or so leave his wife, have an affair, and marry another woman? And he said to me, this was the pastor. Here's what he said. Well, you know, that first marriage was pretty well ended anyway. That's a pastor talking. No wonder adultery is where it is. Lying, especially in legal matters, is now commonplace. Our entire economy is based on violating the Tenth Commandment. I think about this. I mean, what's the point of commercialization, right? Is to get you to desire something that God hasn't given to you. We call it consumerism. And I just heard this week on a news report that our country alone consumes one-eighth of the entire world's resources. One-eighth. We're that big. Few believe in God anymore. And I'll just tell you this, there is no fear of him. 20 years ago, when I started this church, we would go into the neighborhoods and put door hangers on doors. In fact, I've been doing that for a few years prior to that, not just for this church as it was being founded, but for other churches. And when we would put those door hangers on doors, we would get phone calls from people who were angry. They'd be really angry because uh, they didn't like what was written on those on that piece of information we left on their door. And it was invariably, if we went out and did 10,000 door hangers, I would get a half dozen to maybe 10 phone calls. Today, if we did the same amount, I'll just tell you, I would get zero phone calls. And it's not because people have accepted our views. It's because they've become completely indifferent to them. They just don't care anymore. If you tell a person there is a hell and that you are going to that hell, that person will not care. It's a completely different mindset, even from 20 years ago. And I think in this, my friends, we resemble Nineveh. We have become the new Nineveh. Some in the past have thought America as the new Israel, that we were God's chosen people, as it were. I mean, you know, the song we sing around July 4th, America, America, God shed his grace on thee. Our country was conceived in religious liberty. And while good for the spread of the gospel, that didn't make our country a Christian nation. I, I would say this, in fact, with the exception of the great Christian revivals that occurred here, at various points in our history, our people have been largely pagan from the very start. I mean, if you look at the history of revivals and the things that those revivals accomplished, including a 30, a 30 or so year stretch of prohibition, which is just amazing. If you look at those revivals, other than those times, we've been pretty much a pagan nation. In fact, I'll tell you that um, the pre-United States, pre-British rule, you know, New York City used to be called New Amsterdam uh, when it was under Dutch rule. A Dutch colony was a cesspool of sinful activities. Remember one of the early novels, early American novels, was The Scarlet Letter. And you probably read that book in high school or college, some of you, and you know what that book's about. Well, you think the, uh, was it Hawthorne that wrote The Scarlet Letter? You think he just came up with the idea of, a, of the cheating, philandering pastor and, and the lady out of the blue? It was commonplace in that culture. Our history has two great stains, slavery and abortion. Christians fought against each, and, have, and, and, and I think, unfortunately, some Christians have supported each, 
But it's not, it's just kind of, in my mind, romantic nonsense to believe that because Washington went to church, he was Episcopalian, and Franklin talked about God, he was a deist, and neither were Christians, or Lincoln prayed that we somehow have a Christian history. And it's really no more obvious than if you think about what kind of God America wants. What kind of God do the people want? Back around the turn of the last century, so around the year 2000, right when every, all the computers were supposed to shut down. Do you remember that? Some of you weren't even born, or you were very little at the time. But back around the turn of the century, some researchers over at UNC Chapel Hill examined the religious views of American teenagers at the time. So these would be people born in the late 1980s and going forward. And what they discovered is that American teens believed then in a kind of Christianized religion. So it wasn't biblical Christianity. It was a Christianized religion that God exists. He created the world and watches over the earth. And by the way, that's just deism. And he wants people to be good and nice. That the goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. That God is only there to solve our problems and good people go to heaven. Let me stop for a second and say, these, the secular researchers at UNC Chapel Hill, after interviewing about 3,000 teenagers, came to the conclusion that this is the belief system of the teenagers of that time. These are all now young adults today. And this view is now the predominant it is the prevailing worldview of people who describe themselves as Christians in the United States. It's called moral therapeutic deism. So uh, uh, George Barna is a Christian pollster. He has discovered that about 74% of people who call themselves Christians actually subscribe to moral therapeutic deism. If you want to understand this, friends, all you need to do is start listening on YouTube to the kind of preaching that is going across pulpits in America today. It is not based on God's word. It's based on a hodgepodge of pop psychology, what sounds good, and often what's coming out of theaters, and movies, and television, and on the internet. That's pretty much what we have. So it's no surprise that 74% of people who call themselves Christians hold to moral therapeutic deism. It's the prevailing worldview of Christians today. 16% uh, of may actually uh, of evangelicals, of people who would be like us, who might even come to our church, 16% of evangelicals hold to moral therapeutic deism. 91% do not believe that people are sinful and that they need salvation through Jesus Christ. 88% trust other sources in the Bible, and 71% deny biblical inspiration. 76% believe good people go to heaven. My friends, that's just Nineveh. That's just a false religion. It's not biblical Christianity at all. And, and because I believe we are so much like Nineveh, I think the book of Nahum is relevant. It's modern. It's old in the way it reads, but it's modern in the way it's received. There is so much here that we can take for ourselves. And what I want to do, understanding Nahum is writing to the world's only superpower of a divine warrior God. This is his main theme. 
He's talking to them about this divine warrior God who he says will come and destroy you. He doesn't even talk about repentance any longer. But he talks about this divine warrior God who is coming to these Ninevites, who is going to destroy their city. 150 years after Jonah preached repentance and the people did. And when you think about the themes here, it really does talk about our country. It makes me ask, what kind of God does, do Americans want? How does the idea of a divine warrior God, how do you think that fits into the way people think today? Well, let's begin. I have three questions. Each of my main points are a question. Is America's God a righteous warrior? That's question number one. Is, is that the God we want as Americans? The first thing I want you to see in verses 1 through 3 is that God is vengeful. God is vengeful. It says here in verse 2, God is jealous. El is jealous, El, like Elohim. And the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, he revenges. The Lord revenges, and Baal is furious. Now God's enemies are exposed by their refusal to worship him. Nahum expresses the supremacy of God using three names of God here. He is El, Elohim. That's the first name of God. It's the first word here in verse 2. It's translated God, but it's El, Elohim, depicting God's power and strength. He's the creator of God. In the beginning, Elohim, God, created the heavens and the earth. He is also called Baal, not to be confused with the Phoenician god Baal, or what's called the Baals, right? That's Jezebel. That would be the god who uh, was the fertility god and who was the agriculture god. If you wanted your crops to grow, you had to worship the Baals. The, you remember at Carmel, on Mount Carmel, uh, Elijah is, is uh, in confrontation with the prophets of Baal. That, that Baal is the wicked Baal. The Baal here, and actually there are places in the Old Testament, God is called Baal. It's a reference really to denoting that God is a master over everything. So here, uh, Nahum is talking about the master God, the power God, the Jehovah God. That's the third name. The primary name, and it's in the rest of the book. He talks only about Jehovah, showing that Israel's God is greater than any other God on earth. Now, those who refuse to honor, who honor Jehovah are his enemies. He is greater than the gods of Nineveh. Do you remember the god the Ninevites worshipped? His name was Dagon. You remember it was the a body of a man and what was on top? Do you remember? was the head of a fish. Does that sound familiar uh, for all my Indian friends? You have, uh, there are gods in the in the Hindu religion. Is, are there not that are half human and half animal? I think um, um, Ganesh is half elephant and half boy. Isn't that correct? So, you know, this kind of fits within the pantheon of the gods. This is the god the Ninevites worshipped. And, and, and those who worship false gods, Jehovah is saying here, God is saying here, if you worship false gods, then really you're my enemy. If you refuse to give me honor, Nahum calls them. Look at the end of verse 2. What is his word for them? He takes vengeance on his what? On his adversaries or his enemies. 
for the people who purposely go against God, notice they are actually under his judgment. He says, I am jealous. The emotions of someone who has been spurned and rejected. He says, I am jealous. This is the language God uses referencing false gods. He is a jealous God. Don't worship any other gods other than me. That's what he tells Israel. And he says, do these other gods, can they even stand in rival against me? People worship them as if they have anything to do with life. They, of course, are nothing. And God's jealousy flames up when other things are honored for the very things he has done. Let me tell you something, friends. It is gross idolatry when people say that man just evolved. It is idolatry. It's evil. Because they're denying what God did. And God says his jealousy leads him to vengeance. He has a zeal for his own glory. Because he is the greatest perfection, he can only glory in that which is perfect. If God gloried in something other than himself, he would cease to be God. Does that make sense to you? Do you understand what I'm saying? If God were actually to glory in something other than what is greatest, then he would be imperfect. And because he would then be imperfect, he couldn't be God anymore. Because he is perfect, he must glory only in himself. And so when people glory in a God that is less than him, when they look and say, like the Israelites turned to the golden calf and said, these be your gods, O Israel, that led you up out of the land of Egypt. When that happens, it's denigrating God. Or like the, Paul wrote in Romans, it changes the glory of an incorruptible God to be made like the glory, the bulgy glory, like to corruptible men and beasts and birds and even creeping things. So how does God respond? He's a vengeful God. He says he will not let these adversaries escape his wrath. Look at the end of verse 2. He reserves his wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great power and will not at all acquit the wicked. I find it very interesting here. He keeps his wrath against people. That is what he says. I'm reserving it. I'm holding it up in store. It's like on a layaway plan. He used to have at Kmart. I don't think they do layaway anymore. Maybe some places do. But you could go and buy an item, give a little money, and the next month give a little more money. And, and, and then when you finally got it all paid off, you got the item. And, and this is what God is doing with his wrath. He's just laying it up in store. In fact, the Hebrew text here points to the people themselves, the adversaries, as the objects of God's wrath. This is their future. Can I just stop and say, shouldn't we have pity on them? Instead of looking at the gross sin of our culture, and there's a lot of ugliness around us, instead of looking at it and going, ooh, and trying to you know, hide our eyes from that, shouldn't we have pity for those people? Understand, they are under the wrath of God. It's pretty horrible. And God's enemies are certain to experience his wrath. He calls it vengeance here three times. But what's beautiful is that while God is storing up his wrath against them, he is still patient. It says the Lord is slow to anger and in great power will not acquit the wicked. God is long-suffering 
And I think because he's long-suffering, they've concluded he doesn't reward the wicked at all. Oh, there was the, the, the famous atheist of the 19th century who would go around to the various carnivals uh, in the country, and he would stand there and he'd pull out his pocket watch and he would twirl it around and say, if there's a God, I, I challenge him to strike me dead in the next five minutes and just sit there and have a little fun with the crowd. Until one day a man from the back says, does the gentleman think he can exhaust the patience of God in five minutes? God is long-suffering, but it doesn't mean wrath's not coming. He will not acquit the wicked. His long-suffering nature doesn't prevent his wrath against sinners. Nahum says the God, uh, the Baal, the, the master over wrath. Think about that. God is the master of wrath. And he will pour out his wrath the emotions, God's emotions are burning hot against sinners. And because God's wrath we poured out against sinners, it is certain. I think by way of application, there are a couple things we need to think through. Number one, we ourselves need to be sure that we are not under God's wrath. And the only way to do that is to be in Christ. All of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus at the cross. If you're not in Christ, my friend, you are under the wrath of God. But the second thing I think it leads us to do is we must tell people about the love of Jesus, the only solution to go through, because his vengeance is real. We have to go into the highways and byways and compel them to come in, to, to actually come to faith in Christ, because this is their only hope of salvation. You think about what happened with Jonah. Here he is walking through Nineveh, and he's saying, in just a few days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And, and I'm sure there was more to his sermon than just that one sentence. But people were turning from their sin and repenting in, in actual sackcloth. The king got off his throne, took off his crown, took off his royal robes and put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. They repented. And even while they were repenting, just some 150 years later, they had completely turned away from him. So let me ask you something. Does America want a righteous God? What do you think? Does that kind of fit our culture today? Do you think they want a God who, who would upend their lifestyle and change the way they live? Not only is God a righteous warrior, he's a powerful warrior. Let's consider the second question. Does America want a powerful warrior? Look at verse 3. God's love, or God's love, God's power is supreme over nature. You find at the end of verse 3, God has his way in the whirlwind and the storm. The clouds, I love the poetic expression here. The clouds are the dust of his feet. It's like when he's walking, he just stirs up some dust. Well, those are the clouds in, in the sky. He rebukes the sea, makes it dry, dries up the rivers. His supremacy is demonstrated in his control of nature. He creates these storms and he controls the storms. I, I mean, I know today storms are powerful. They're pretty powerful. I was driving home from a friend's graduation and went to Salem on Friday night and the wind was really howling. I had no idea. Just a few miles away, a tornado touched down. Uh, I'm thankful it wasn't on the highway. But the winds were really whipping. And, and that was just a small storm. Some of these storms are huge. I mean, our hockey team here is called the Hurricanes. We've seen some big storms here in our state, in South Carolina and right around us. God, he is in the whirlwind and in the storm. God creates the storms. He stirs up the clouds. I love this. Not only that, he stops them too. So, so you get the idea of a storm and the rain and, and the flooding and all that comes with that. But then he says, 
but he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers. That comes from drought, from not having rain. Everything kind of stops. Reminded, oh, do you all remember maybe 15, 16 years ago, we had a horrible drought here in North Carolina? It just didn't rain uh, for weeks on end during the summertime. And uh, it got so bad, some small towns ran out of water. They were trucking in water from other other places. And other than Preston, nobody was watering their lawns. It was really, I'm just, I'm just kidding. But, but it was really bad. And it got so bad, there was actually some discussion of how long can we go if we don't get rain? When do our crops fail? When do the farmers actually lose everything here in the state? And, and at that point, there were actually people starting just to whisper, maybe we need to pray and ask God to send rain. Never really happened, but just kind of a whispering campaign. My friends, we had a horrible drought hit our country two years ago. Coronavirus was like a drought. It was un I've never seen anything like it, and you haven't either in our lifetimes. Businesses completely shut down. Do you remember driving around your home? Did any of you, you got out of the house and drive around the streets? I came over to the office because it was, you know, I'm alone over there. I'm alone at home. It's the same thing, right? So I'd come over here and I'd sit at my desk and the drive over and I'd be the only car on the street. It was unbelievable. And during that entire time and up to this, I've heard very few people say, let's ask God for help. That's just not in our nature, our country's nature any longer. God stops the storms. He creates them. He stops them. And the influence of his power is, notice here he says, Bashan. Bashan was where all the fertile uh, fertile plains were. It's where all the animals grazed. He, 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 other prophets talks about the fat cows of Bashan. Uh, they, they had all that fertile place. But he says, notice he says, Bashan languishes and Carmel. Those two places a place in northern Israel, a well-known water source. He says it languishes. It's just dry. It's empty. And Lebanon, where they had all those beautiful trees. He says the flower of Lebanon languishes. God can stop the water completely. And then I think the drought is symbolic of a fiery God descending to earth. He burns up the water. It says here he makes the mountains shake in fear, verse 5. He causes the hills to melt and literally the earth burns at his presence. God is supreme over nature. And because of that, nobody can stand up against him. Look at verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. So you got those two rhetorical questions, okay? If God is all-powerful, then is there anybody who can stand before him? Can any one man stand up and say, I have a right to speak to you as I wish, to talk to God and say, this is what I demand as a human being? No. I think... And the more the older I get, the more I read in the scriptures, when you read that passage that in, in the lake of fire, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think the gnashing of teeth is not sadness, it's anger. I think if it's anything like our culture, we, we have people who will be angry at God in that day, but they will not submit to him. Not now, not ever. And so... Nahum is saying all of nature is nothing compared to God. The fire flows from him like water. 
I can't, I can't even describe fully very well his fury. He's poured out like fire. It's just, it, it pours out of him, this fiery river. And he takes the boulders of the earth like they're little rocks and skips them across a lake. And, and God can take the giant boulders of the earth and do that. It's just, he's so powerful. Is that the kind of God America wants? If it's, if it's, the, if it's to help me with my problems, it's the, if it's to fix my, my difficulties, then maybe. But, but if it's in this context, in a context of a God as a divine warrior, I don't think the answer is yes. Not only is God righteous and powerful, but finally he is just. And this is my third question. Does America's God want a just warrior? Look at verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows them that trust in him. You know what's great about God as a just warrior? With all of this negativity, do you see what Nahum puts here? And the prophets often do. One little ray of hope. One little beautiful line of hope. For all who trust in him, he's their refuge. He's their place of rescue. The Lord is good. Even in wrath, he's good. Even in his anger, he's good. Even, even in his judgment, he's good. He's a fortress for those who trust in him. God is our protection. He's the little outcropping of rock that you stand under when the violent rain comes and you're on a hike. He, he's that place of security you go to when things get really bad. He's our fortress. He, he, he's the tower that surrounds us. He's our guard. He's our protector. And the Lord is good. And for those who know, he knows those who trusted him, like the shepherd caring for his sheep, that entire image that goes through scripture, it's there. He, he knows them who trust in him. And God cares for his own. Well, I want that kind of God. But notice, those who reject him will be destroyed. But with an overrunning flood, verse 8, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. So here you have this promise of God being good to those who are his. He knows them, and in the day of trouble, he will keep them from harm. But those who reject God, they will be destroyed. And like fast rising waters, he will wash all of his enemies away, sending them to outer darkness. This is the promise of Nahum to people like who live in our land and in our country. What kind of God does America want? Does it want a fair God, a just God? Does it want a righteous God? Does it want a powerful God? The answer right now is no. It's no. So how, what do we do as believers living in a land like this? Number one, just a couple of applications. Number one, stand up for God where you are. This is our God. Don't back down from this. Don't back away from the fact that God is going to judge people. We've become so afraid to say God is a vengeful God. We've become a little nervous to talk about God's wrath against sin. I can't believe, I was shocked at what I saw on Tuesday and Wednesday on social media. People, Christian people, some people I grew up with, who, whose moms taught my Sunday school classes, whose dads were preachers of the gospel, actually defending 
the, the immoral position that is abortion. I was just shocked and so saddened. I went home on Wednesday and I told my wife, I can't believe how sad I am. I feel so sad inside. I just had a horrible conversation online with a friend that I grew up with. I mean, we have known each other our whole lives and he's defending this kind of evil and wickedness because he's not a believer. And I see on social media, I see this anger against God and I see very few Christians standing up and saying, let me tell you something about my God. You are in trouble, buddy. You need to turn to him. And I think we should stand up for God and say, this is who God is. But number two, I think as we do that, this is why we give the gospel. This is why we go. This is why we put door hangers on doors. This is why we tell our friends about Christ. This is why we invite people to church. Is to say, this, this is the beauty of God. He, if you turn from your sin and accept him as Savior, he will turn his wrath away from you. My friends, we live in a, in a pretty horrible place. Not financially. It's a beautiful place to the eyes. But in terms of righteousness and morality and godliness, it's a pretty horrible place, pretty dark. We're the light. We, we're the light of the earth. We, we radiate Christ, I hope our community. Let's take him everywhere we go. And maybe, maybe that's the comparison that our nation needs. Maybe what they need to see in us is Christ as we go out into this world. The difference between who they are and what they're doing and who we are and what we do. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this book. And as we go through these next few sessions, uh, dealing with this important book. I pray you'd help us, Lord, not to run from this, but to embrace it, to think it through. Lord, to accept this. This is who you are. And, and woe be to us if it's too much for us. Woe be to us, Lord, if, if we as your followers reject any part of who you are. Help us not to do that but rather, Lord, to stand up for truth and righteousness everywhere we go. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.